0: You're listening to In The Open, a Mental Health America podcast, a space where we explore mental health and navigate the challenges of life through honest and candid conversation.
1: Hi, everybody. It's America. I'm back. We are back, actually. We have a special guest with us today. I have Teresa with me. Hey, everyone. And then I have Dr. Stu Shankman with us, who's going to share with us a bunch of stuff that essentially validates all the things we've been talking about for the last few weeks. So yay, Dr. Stu. Stu, tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are.
0: Sure. So glad to be here. My name is Stu Shankman. I'm a a professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, but I'm also, and I guess, primarily a researcher um, who focuses on mechanisms and risk factors for various mental health conditions, largely depression and anxiety and those types of of conditions in adolescents and adults.
1: Awesome. So all of that, all of that is going to help us because we've been talking about a bunch of different tools and mechanisms that we can use to ultimately help us get on a better path towards mental health recovery. But ultimately, we've gotten to a place of asking ourselves, do all of these things like Having good habits, forming better habits for ourselves, finding purpose and meaningful roles, does it actually work? So today we're actually going to think about and kind of address the subject of does therapy actually affect my brain? And I think all your experience and your work can definitely help us think through that. So when we pose that question to you, Stu, do you think that therapy actually affects our brain?
0: Absolutely. So um you know, a lot of people think that the only way to directly impact one's certain neurochemistry or, or brain or neurons firing is with medications or, or other sort of biological interventions. But behavioral interventions, such as, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown in numerous, numerous uh, empirical studies to um, have really profound effects on our, our brain firing both at rest and when our brain is doing various tasks
1: what does that look like in real life you're talking about like how our brain at rest is even doing good things Mm -hmm. so for example if one of the things that we've talked about is finding meaning and purpose how do we get the benefits of that even when our brain is at rest
0: sure so when our when our brain is at rest it's still doing stuff, right? Our our brain is still processing information. It's still uh, encoding memories. It's still working. Our brains never truly shut off, (laughs) um, whether we're asleep or or not. And so when when I'm seeing these studies that looked at brain at rest, um, these are largely looking at when, what are we asking people to do in the study? So thinking about like, if you were to go to your cardiologist and they were to evaluate whether your new heart medicine works, one of the things they might do is just sort of measure your blood pressure when you're sitting at rest, right? So in a chair, you put the cuff on your wrist, or you put your cuff on the arm and we measure your uh, blood pressure at rest, or they might measure your heart functioning when at rest, right? The other thing they might do is they might put your heart under a challenge. They might do what they call a stress test and have you on the treadmill and gradually increase the incline and see, all right, well, let's see how this medication is affecting your heart when it's active, when it's when it's pumping a lot of blood, when you're you know doing some vigorous exercises. When we're looking at the... Uh, effects of therapy on the brain, we actually do a similar sort of thing. So we might measure of of how does this therapy that you're doing or intervention that we're doing for you affect your brain when it's at rest. So we just have you sit in a brain, in an MRI scanner, for example, and just measure your brain when it's at rest, when you're really not doing anything. Again, just like when you're sitting in a chair and we're measuring your blood pressure when you're sitting at rest. Or we might sort of want to challenge the brain. And and see, well, how does your brain performing now when it's doing something? So instead of putting you on a treadmill and having you do vigorous exercises, we might have you do various cognitive exercises um, or maybe give you different stimuli to see how do you respond to happy faces or sad faces? Or how do you respond to doing some kind of uh, executive functioning task or something like that? So again, similar to when you're measuring the heart, we might see how does the brain perform when it's at rest and when it's um, doing some kind of task.
2: And does your research find that different kinds of exercises have different impacts on the brain and, and what, what kind of impact?
0: For sure. Yeah. So it's, what's most interesting, there has been, there was a, a recent meta-analysis. So meta-analysis is when you take a bunch of peer-reviewed studies and you sort of average them together. So instead of taking, you know, this one study with 50 people and study with another 50 people, let's average all those effects together to see overall Again, meta-analytically, it's a very meta. Does it look at uh, what parts of the brain seem to be affected by by therapy? And and so they they this meta-analysis looked at the effects of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most well-studied behavioral intervention. And sort of a, across studies and across disorders and across conditions, CBT seems to really affect circuitry that affects emotion regulation. So it's like not just our ability to experience emotion, but our ability to regulate emotion to sort of, you know, to not have our, our downs be as down or last as long. So being able to regulate those experiences, so not again, not eliminating emotion. We don't want to do that. Um, emotion is part of a human experience. But about more regulating them more effectively. And and the, the brain circuits and the brain regions that are involved in, in emotion regulation seem to be particularly impacted by cognitive behavioral therapy.
2: I know that there are a couple of things that we can look at with the brain, basically how how much it's firing, maybe its volume itself, how much mm-hmm. it might grow as a result. Mm-hmm. What what kind of studies are you seeing out there that help people yeah, understand the way they should feel like feel? and better as part of learning these skills.
0: Yeah, I think people should feel like, you know, when, when you're learning these skills, you're connecting parts of your brain that should be connected stronger. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you have parts of your brain sort of the emotional centers of your brain, like the limbic system. And then you have more your prefrontal cortex that helps you process uh, information at a more higher level. When therapy is working well, you're getting those two regions to talk more. Getting this what they call connectivity or neural connectivity to, to to happen better. So again, you're not you're not eliminating your your ability for your emotion centers to active. We can we want people to experience emotion, and we're not sort of over you know increasing the size of your of your prefrontal cortex, but we're really getting your brain regions to talk better and be more be more connected. That just ultimately will lead people to have higher, better functioning, and, and better well being overall.
1: Both Teresa and I function more with our reptilian brain that's just based on trauma. So when trauma is experienced, is there a connection that is visible through research that shows that these two parts that are generally supposed to be better at talking to one another have maybe been broken, you know, in quotes that ultimately impact how well these two places, these two parts of our brain are not really talking to one another.
0: For sure. Yeah. You know, we, we know that that trauma affects really multiple regions of the, of, of the brain. And so um, so just another example of how trauma affects the brain. Um, yes. To answer your question, it, it, it does affect sort of the connectivity between these sort of higher order prefrontal regions and the more basic. Well, I'll use your term reptilian brain. Um, but it, it, it also uh, it affects things like your hippocampal size. So there have been lots of studies that sort are of showing that, you know, repeated, particularly chronic trauma. So not necessarily sort of acute trauma, um, but more people that have like had a trauma for long periods of time in their life uh, and ex- extended periods of time. They it, it affects sort of the size of the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is really involved in, in declarative memory, sort of memory, for, in, for instance, memory for certain situations. It seems to be, you know, a region of the brain that's particularly affected by trauma. At the same time, though, just because it may be reducing the size of your hippocampus or just trauma may be may reducing the size of your hippocampus doesn't mean that recovery can't happen. Um, there's a process called neurogenesis, which is a really cool term, that, or at least a cool sounding term, um, which is, you know, the creation of neurons through therapy, through adaptive thinking, you can recover your hippocampal size. And so, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes who've had traumas, they, they report feeling, you know, foggier afterwards, more trouble concentrating, maybe trouble remembering things, keeping focus. And, and again, that could be related to their their hippocampus reduction for sure. But again, it's recoverable. It's not like the damage is done and nothing can happen. That's not the case at all. People can, can absolutely recover hippocampal size.
1: I think that's really powerful. Given some of the conversations we've been having the last few weeks, for instance, you know, if you are not accustomed to receiving love, for instance, right, and understanding what that may look like for you in a healthy relationship, and, and that's everything from like an intimate relationship, all the way to friendships, you know, if over time, we're practicing these habits, right, because they essentially become habits when we're able to really latch on to them, then in essence, we are ultimately healing our brain hopefully getting to a place of we, where we can say not only are, are our two, two parts of our brain communicating better, but that neurogenesis piece that you're referring to is happening. Mm-hmm. even though we can't see it, you know I, all I feel is like we, we just need little stars that tell us, yay, things are happening, good things are happening. While you are learning to navigate these maybe unknown feelings and emotions and learning these tools, something good is happening.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So they're, they're some of the, I think some most exciting research that's coming out there is where they're doing real time neural feedback during various tasks. So um, you're, they've done these exercises where people are doing, for example, mindfulness exercises, which I'm sure you guys have been, you've talked about a bunch already. And they have people doing mindfulness exercises in the scanner. So, and then they've, can Feedback the person's, and they've done different regions. They've done amygdala and other sort of parts of the brain. But basically, you're looking at how much that part of your brain's either firing, or or maybe this um, this connectivity that I was talking about before between prefrontal regions and limbic regions. You're like, how strong is that association? And you're watching it sort of go up and down like a uh, status bar type of thing. Of like, okay, now I'm I'm it's going up, and can I make it go up? And can I make it go down with these sort of introceptive awareness that you would do in mindfulness. And, and and first of all, people are able to do it. And second of all, they report actually feeling better, like their mood improves, their anxiety is reduced after doing this sort of biofeedback, this neurobiofeedback by watching their brain sort of heal again in real time.
2: That's really cool.
1: Yeah, that's really powerful, especially when I think oftentimes we are our worst enemies, right? Where we we not only want to see that change happens very quickly and maybe I go to therapy a couple of times and I'm like, okay, nothing's happening. I feel worse when I'm coming out of Mm -hmm. therapy than when I'm going in. And when you hear that people tell you, no, you have to give it time or we ask for folks like to integrate new habits and we're like, no, it takes time. You want to just feel And I speak for myself, right? Where I'm just like, okay, nothing's happening. I'm going to give up. There's no reason for me to even try to implement some change. But from what you're sharing, there is really good, not only research that shows us that there are advancements, um, but also that it is having an actual impact. Mm -hmm. I wish there was like a scanner at home. Be like, look. Or a tiny
2: one, you know, because I often think of, We were talking about the delay in reward being a a difficult factor when it came to mental effort or practice, right? Like, it's so easy for me to drink or to use a substance because I know the effect that it's going to give me. But that's why food and exercise and therapy, it feels like it takes longer. But can you speak to that? like? Can we be attentive to the immediate reward that we receive? Or what are you seeing in the science about how quickly your brain is healing and how quickly you should be able to see that impact?
0: Yeah, it does take time. I mean, it, it does like your brain isn't gonna heal in sort of one session, for example, of, of therapy. Yeah. And I always tell, you know, my my clients that I had a client a long time ago that talked about having rocks in his head and that and that was sort of his negative thinking and his um, you know, his early trauma that he had, early and chronic trauma that he had. And so we actually we sort of played with that analogy of rocks at his head further. And, that, and it's sort of like, how do you break down a rock? If you hit a rock, you know, if you have a big enough rock, if you hit it with a hammer once, maybe you get a little crack at it at most, right? You know, you're not going to shatter the rock with one hit. But what you do is you sort of slowly chip away at it, right? You sort of break away at each piece. And it's going to take time. And eventually the rock gets smaller and smaller. And, and that's how you kind of eliminate it. But like, you know, one bash, I don't care how big of a hammer you have, you're not going to disintegrate. Could create that rock, and so it's one being patient, but also I think keeping the the goal in mind. So I always another just another analogy I like to use with my clients is that when you do a jigsaw puzzle, what's the first thing you guys do when you do a jigsaw puzzle?
2: Sort and reveal the face side of the puzzle pieces.
0: Right. So first you turn all the pieces over, right, mm-hmm. to make sure every all the pieces are up. And then what do you do next? You got the pieces turned over. What do you do next?
2: You sort them the edges from the center, maybe by color.
0: But what you also do, and you don't even realize you're doing this, you're looking at the back of the box to see what is the ultimate Mm. result going to look like. And it's the same (laughs) thing with therapy. You're like, what's my goal? You know, what, what do I want to be in in X number of months? And if you don't have your eye on that back of the box, if you're just focused on turning the pieces over and getting the blues together and the greens together, or whatever, yeah. you might lose sight and lose motivation to go. You have to look at the back of the box. You have to remind yourself to keep looking at the back of the box to see what is that ultimate goal, and and that'll keep you motivated to keep working and, and, and working on the puzzle.
2: And people do often ask, like, um, you know, I've had people be who attended therapy for a long time and just were not seeing benefit, and that felt problematic, but. And, and a lot of people just ask the question, like, how long should I be in therapy? You know, <laughs> like, well, and I, I know that there's also been a cultural shift here where, we, where it used to be the case that we thought therapy could be a forever thing, an exploratory mm-hmm. thing. And then with CBT moving to be very finite tasks and goals. But when you think about the biology of the brain and being able to see physical change in the brain through practice, what's the timeline there?
0: Yeah. I mean, so these, these studies, like I was saying, that meta-analysis that I um, looked at CBT was after 12 sessions. Um, yeah. So eight to 12 sessions is kind of a standard, a standard thing, but, but it's sort of good, you know, evidence-based CBT therapy. And, and as I'm sure you guys have talked about, there's a lot of variability in the quality of, of therapy that's out there. And that's something that's actually sort of very near and dear to my heart about trying to improve access and uh, to high quality therapy because you know, there's a lot of, I I can't count the number of people who've had bad experiences with therapy, either bad or useless, useless experiences with therapy. And it's really unfortunate because when they have that kind of bad experience, they then lose the motivation to want to try somebody else and try somebody new and a new experience. And um, I think there's a lot of people out there who are quite frustrated with the mental health services that they have received. It's a shame, but I think, I guess the recommendation is keep looking at the back of the box and, you know, keep having that goal in mind and keep trying
2: yeah. Eight to 12 sessions is pretty quick. And I know a lot of people who may not always have access to quality CBT may have talk therapy, which kind of gets close to some exposure or narrative therapy, just to- being able to-, to disclose a trauma, you know, share mm-hmm. and problem solve with another person. Is there research being conducted on the impacts of other kinds of therapies outside of CBT?
0: Yeah, not a whole lot of that. I guess what you're describing more like insight-oriented therapies, where or kind of a psychodynamic. They're definitely far less on that. I, I think just because it's hard to to check the fidelity of those to make sure mm-hmm. that that everyone's kind of doing the same thing. So these, you know, the interventions like you can have people sort of follow um, more of a protocol with CBT or mindfulness interventions too, which is sort of a variant of CBT, so to speak. And um, but the more kind of insight-oriented or more uh, I guess old school psychodynamic therapies definitely haven't been studied, you know, with a neuroscientific angle.
2: But given your experience, do you think there would be an impact, or are you not sure? <laughs> do you not um, want to say? I, I,
0: I would, I would actually probably doubt it, honestly, because I, I, th- I think, or, or at least I don't think there's an impact of that over and above a person just figuring things out on their own. Mm. Like I don't, I don't think that kind of therapy would really change the brain more than sort of like what the control condition, right? Of, of like, what's there, um, just kind of figuring those things out on their
1: own. Oh, well, I think it's interesting too, when we struggle, for instance, in like, if we're at the beginning stages of, of trying to understand what's happening with us, right? And we're we're saying, okay, I, I'm going to go to the easiest one for me, which is like losing weight, right? I've tried losing weight. I've done exercise, it worked, but then I gave it up. I've tried to eat better. And, and so I get to this place of, that I'm okay existing where I am and then something else happens and I'm like, oh, you remember, you should you should try to lose weight. For that, that something has to happen within me to not only feel strongly enough for me to go and ask for help, right? If I know that, for instance, I cannot do it on my own. I need Teresa to show up at my door to pull me out of this slump. Those types of activities, and and I'm going to say rituals that are tied to that, do they extend beyond this initial kind of internal conversation that we have? And then are there data points that actually help to justify that 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 actually works, right? Like finding peers to push you along is like one step removed out of therapy.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think it hasn't been studied it's been studied empirically, but not like with with. They've done studies where they've coded what happens during the course of therapy. They're called these psychotherapy process studies. But um, just from these like coding of the process of therapy, what is very evident is that therapy does not happen linearly. Like improvement does not happen linearly, where it's sort of this gradual, steady increase. There are these really abrupt change points where things are flat, things are flat, boom, there's a change, positive change. Things are flat, things are flat, boom, there's a change. And, and so it's, sometimes you can call those the aha moments that people experience. Um, It's like, oh, that's what we're talking about. Oh, or it can just be this sort of poof realization. And that happens actually across therapies. And so I I think it's important for people to first be patient for, for those. And so you're going to be in the, in the plateau period for a little bit before you have those change points, but also to notice and to be aware and, and mindful of when those change points do occur. To not just dismiss them. To not okay. Well, then wait wait for the next one. To really and celebrate them. You know, to celebrate those moments. Like, oh yeah, that realization that I had, or that improvement that I had. Like, like those are the things that really will ultimately lead to the to better possible outcomes.
2: I love that. Yeah, the aha moments are. There's something about them. Are there? How much of the studies about therapies have been about aha (laughs) moments?
0: Aha uh-huh moments. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Th- th- there's a there's a good amount that it's where people you know you see with like anxiety disorders, for example, where where people know yes, there's nothing inherently scary about giving a speech or about social interactions or about my panic attacks or something, and yet nevertheless they still feel anxious about um, giving a speech, social situations, panic attacks. But they have the aha moment when they like, oh, I went out with my friends the other night and. We met somebody new, and holy cow! I wasn't freaked out by meeting this other people, and you know what? And then they took us to a new place I hadn't been before, and it was you know not as upsetting as I thought it was going to be. Aha! Maybe these things aren't you know, It's that those types of experiences, and again, to celebrate those because even though like you know the person may have known going into it and has been told that for years, until they experienced it themselves, it was almost like it was empty words.
2: I love the concreteness of that, you know. I think if anybody has been in therapy, you know what that feels like too. And and you're saying it's not necessarily therapy because just therapy. Therapy pushes you, it builds insight, it questions, but it's the practice. It's when you take it home
0: exactly and you
2: apply these and you have revelation that this is key. So in that way, you know, you can't just sit in a room and expect change if you don't change your behaviors, if you don't continue to build insight.
0: The true action of therapy, the true mechanisms of therapy happen outside of therapy.
2: Yeah.
0: They rarely honestly happen in the room. It's when people are out there practicing. So even think about like athletes, right? When does an athlete learn how to truly like hit a ball the correct way or throw the ball? It's not when they're sitting in the room with the coach and the coach is explaining proper technique for how to bat a ball or kick a ball or whatever they're doing. It's when they're actually on the field sort of putting that into practice, in the, in the real world. Like, oh, yes, when I'm actually swinging, that's that's when I'm going to, that that's when I learn what the proper motion is to, to, to hit a ball. It's not in the classroom, yeah. <laughs> you know, learning about it.
2: I love aha moments too, because in therapy, when a therapist has pushed on an issue and you have an aha moment, <laughs> <laughs> I know at least for myself and maybe America, if you did too, but you're like, for me, that's kind of when I'm kicking myself in the ass in therapy and you're like, why is that so obvious? But you're also really sitting with it and thinking the aha moments, they're just, they're sticky. You kind of can root yourself back in them. They really cause you to think and reevaluate your life and your behaviors. For me, those are have always been the most memorable moments of therapy.
1: I think my aha moments have have occurred outside where where Stu is, is mentioning right where i'm in the like i'm in the thick of things and then this i was like oh my god oh wow and it's like so vivid that you can't avoid but recognizing that this is the issue at hand and you're like oh my god she was right you know <laughs>
0: yeah and, and like i said i think it's important to then document them because i think life happens really fast and and then you might forget what those are and so you know either journaling them down or 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 just noting them somewhere and um so that because to be able to sort of plot so to speak like on a graph um the different aha moments and and sort of because so that so that they don't seem random Mm -hmm. Um, they don't seem like random occurrences but that that they truly seem like a pattern of improvement because maybe you know maybe the aha moments used to occur once a year, but now they're occurring once a month or something. And, and to, to, again, if you, if it's documented, like, Oh, look at this, like that's another aha moment in itself, <laughs> like realizing that these are occurring maybe more frequently or maybe across different situations or, or whatever it might be.
2: I love that.
1: What resonates with me the most about what you've shared today is is some of the practices that we've been talking about everything from understanding for yourself what matters, um, creating these rituals and habits, asking for help, or even you know, learning how to find happiness takes practice. And you oftentimes hear that, right? Like it takes time, it takes practice, but in everything that you've shared, the research shows us, right? Like the scientific scans of our brain show us there is actual stuff, good stuff that's happening. And for me, because I'm a visual and kind of analytical brain, like, I need these stars, right, that tell me, you've done a good job. So these aha moments that you're referencing really go into that space and help me. And I would imagine it would help others as well, to, so that we don't forget, like, you have made progress. Maybe it's not that, you know, gargantuan progress that life's changed forever, but these tiny things can build. And that's really an important piece.
2: Yeah, I like the I mean the aha moment is such a nice nugget, uh, something to root yourself in. But I also appreciated too the this notion of how easily things can get connected as you practice over time. And we talk about that like the first time we were in recovery, when I've practiced skills, it it's, it you know, you kind of screw up a bu- a bunch. <laughs> and then you have to remind yourself of your toolbox and bring that back in the focus of your mind and and, and, and I always tell people like the first time I had an episode, it was very long and it was painful, but the second time it was shorter. And then the third time I could preempt it, you know, I could se- see where it was coming and, and practice what I needed to practice to make sure that I wasn't going to fall into that trap. And it absolutely feels like your brain is a muscle Was able to reach those spaces quicker. And and that for me is the closest thing that I could visualize to what it actually feels like, to know what, like how to apply practice and, 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 and how that impacts recovery, right? So you're talking about making those connections faster. And I think that's absolutely true. But that took practice.
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah, I think treating it like a muscle where where you're where things just take practice or, or even where you're making new associations and learning new things. So, you know, if you think about kind of the rat in the cage, right, the rat may have learned for years that um, blue light equals danger, right? Yeah. blue light equals shock. And it, it learned that for years that blue light equals shock. And but if all of a sudden blue light doesn't equal shock, it's now not going to say, oh, great, blue light's safe. We're all good now. Everything's fine. It's still going to have that long-term memory that blue light equals shock. It's going to take many, many trials of having blue light not equal shock for it to unlearn that association.
2: Stu, do you have any other final thoughts that you want to share with the audience?
0: Yeah, I, I guess just just making sure, just kind of going back to what I was mentioning before that for people to be sort of smart consumers of the therapy that they receive, um, I think a lot of people sometimes you know sort of find a the therapist like, oh yeah, it's fine, they're nice, and we talk about our stuff, but. For, for people to sort of really ask for you know good evidence-based therapies i think is important and like i said, be a smart consumer and and to not be afraid to kind of talk with your therapist about the therapy like i, I but so many people over the years who you know I, i've talked to and they said well i'm like well, what are you guys doing in therapy like, i don't know it's like well have you asked your therapist like what are you working on what the goals are it's like oh uh no <laughs> and i think so just you know having an open and frank dialogue with your therapist about you know, about the process of therapy, talking about therapy. Um, and, and then if it's not a good match to be okay with moving on and, and trying to find someone that is.
2: Yeah, that's great. For people, sometimes CBT or, you know, it's, it can be, it's a privilege issue. Like, do, does, do you have mm-hmm. access to the money that can offer you to afford that? What do you recommend for people who might not, but want to be able to feel the impact on their brain?
0: Sure. I mean, well, there's various like self-help apps that people have that are free, that are great. I know, for example, the, the VA, the, the Veterans Affairs offers a, a nice suite of, of applications, smartphone applications that are either free or very, very cheap, like a dollar. And most people fortunately have access to smartphones these days. So that's something that a lot of people get access to. What's hard with those things is that you don't have, it's up to you. So you don't have the the coach, so to speak, who's who's guiding you and providing, um, but at least it's a free option. And, and there's various clinics, in, in depending on where people live, that are often training clinics that offer therapy, good evidence-based therapy at a sliding scale. So if there's like a university nearby where, where some of your listeners are that might have a training clinic for psychology students, um, they often have a sliding scale from anywhere from free to like, you know, 20, 30 bucks a session or something. So you're getting a trainee, but at least a trainee is being supervised by somebody who's, you know, an expert in the field.
2: Great. And if people want to learn more about you and your research, where can they go?
0: Sure. So um, they can come to, I guess, to sort of maybe Google my lab. So it's Stu Shankman, and um, I'm at Northwestern University, and I run the NEAR Lab. And we're always doing, for people are in the Chicago area, we're always doing research studies and looking for participants for our for our studies. So um, they should check out our website um, at the NEAR Lab, N-E-A-R Lab.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Sue, for spending time with us today. And validating what we've been doing and talking about.
0: <laughs> happy to happy to be here. You guys are doing great work.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone. We'll talk to you all next week. Keep fighting in the open, everyone.